This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Anyone who read or watched Big Little Lies and enjoyed it is in for an absolute treat with today's book, The Drop-Off. Welcome Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Jan. The very first thing I read in this, in your book, The Drop-Off, is that you two live in Melbourne with your daughters and your dog, Bonnie. Bonnie is allowed on the furniture. So are the kids. There is definitely more humour in this book than in Big Little Lies, but the book does have similar settings. Where's that? Uh, well, it's in a schoolyard and I guess, yeah, Big Little Lies is all about three mothers um, and their relationship with each other and with their kids at the school. I guess a main difference with our book is obviously that there's no murder in our book. Um, and, and I think there's a lot more focus on the kids um, in Big Little Lies and how they fit into the story. Whereas I think with our book, it's much more adult centric. I would say that. Would you agree, Mike? I would agree with that. Uh, to be more specific, the, the setting is a southeast Melbourneian Bayside primary school. Uh, yeah, our book, I think, has much more of a focus on the positive aspects of being a part of a community, whereas in Big Little Lies, you know, it's a fairly fraught community, particularly at the school. Um, and I think in the drop-offs, uh, not necessarily a more rose-coloured glasses view of a school community, but it's just a very direct reflection of our, our personal experience of the school community that we um, came to know and love at our girls' primary school. Well, another similarity is the friendship group. Now, this, these friends got together because they have children of similar ages. And we should start there. Let's, let's start with Sam. Tell us about him. Well, look, I'm not saying he's an unhappy man, even though to a large extent he is, and he is a house husband, and he's very, very good at it. Um, being an ex-chef, he, um, he feeds his kids very well and stocks their lunchboxes with some very inventive snacks. But um, he's in an unhappy marriage. Mm. He is uh, feeling very emasculated. He's feeling like he's on a downward trajectory. He doesn't he doesn't know how to look forward, at least at the start of the book. He only, he's, he's very trapped within his own regrets and uh, feelings of shame about his past and feelings of shame about the fact that he feels like he's in a failing marriage. But his daily solace, his rays of light, are Megan and Lizzie that he gets to hang out with, you know, these accidental friends that he made at the drop-off. And so he absolutely cherishes that time with these two excellent women five days a week and it becomes a real lifeblood for him it becomes an energy source and um and a source of inspiration to to make some changes in his life of course with um the other megan and lizzie they have a they have a family connection he really doesn't i'd like the way he called his mother a toxic tsunami of negativity well let's go on to megan she's not in a marriage anymore yeah megan's a single mum to oscar um, she's a very successful um, businesswoman and she loves her business. It's an online business, but she doesn't have a lot of friends. She's quite solitary. Her only friends are Sam and Lizzie. And the only reason she has them as friends is again, because of the drop off, she met them there. Um, but because her business is, is all done from home on her computer, she doesn't have a very big social life. So apart from Sam and Lizzie, the only people she really sees are, is her mum. And as opposed to Sam, 
Megan and her mum are actually very close and have a great relationship. So her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, the religious Clara. Oh, yes. (laughs) When when their little baby was, when Oscar was small, they wanted him to christen. There's a lovely quote from Megan to this mother-in-law. Religion and all of its bullshit, including dunking babies in god water, are about as relevant as witch burnings and Kodak shots. Yes, they have very different opinions on religion. So luckily she doesn't have to see her very often anymore because she's divorced now. But, yeah, that that all gets addressed in the book when we learn about Megan's backstory. So, yeah, Megan's similar to Sam in that um, she lives quite a a solitary life and doesn't have a lot of friends um, around her or a big family. She's only got her mum and she rarely sees her brother. I like the way, too, that uh, if, if she would ever was asked what she did on the weekend, she'd say, I caught up with my friend Michael and a bottle of wine. Who was Michael? Guy that runs the bottle shop. That's her bestie, Michael, who recommends the best vino on the shelves. Well, there's Lizzie. Now, she's got a, a job and four kids. Is she a super mum? She'd hate to be called a super mum. She thinks that's a load of BS. But she she's just someone who gets things done. And she's very different, again, to Megan and Sam in that she does have a very good, solid friendship base. And she has a very big family. And they're all very close. And her life is quite busy. And when we first meet Lizzie, her life, she's very happy with her lot in life. She loves her husband. She loves her kids, even though they drive her mad. She loves her job. She loves her family. I want to go back to her family because I think some of the descriptions of her children that you've done are just brilliant. There's Zara, 11-year-old, bursting with pre-10 teenage rage and uh, the twin Archie, very academically smart, but her sea sponge had a sharp wit. And Stella, (laughs) a 45-year-old tax accountant trapped in the body of an (laughs) 8-year-old. And six-year-old Archie bore the remnants of a condiment of one or another on his face at all times. I think those descriptions of those kids are just brilliant. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) And, you know, she comes from a big family. Another quote, life is awkward and uncomfortable. That is why siblings should tease each other and fart on one another's heads. (laughs) Yep. Her father's advice If you're always looking back at the things you've done, you'll miss what's coming towards you and maybe walk into a pole. She comes from a pretty stable family background. Yeah, she's very down to earth. There's no airs or graces or pretense about Lizzie. And if she ever tried that on with her family, she'd very quickly find out that they're not going to put up with that. So, yeah, Lizzie's very grounded and and is all about the mess and the, you know, being honest and there's no talk of being a perfect parent. And, yeah, that's why I think we love Lizzie because she sort of is, it goes against the, the, you know, the perfect parent that we might see represented in a lot of, of, you know, TV shows or books. And she's also very different to Megan and Sam. They're all very different in their own ways. And it's no it's no surprise to any of our dear friends who've read the book that Lizzie is Fiona. <laughs> there is a bit of Lizzie in me. Yes. Just a touch. Yes. Just a sprinkling. Well, then, is there a bit of Dave in you then, Michael McLeish? 
No, there is not a scary... Well, actually, no, that's not true. There is a, I think there's a little bit of Dave in all of us, Jan. <laughs> but so. um, I'm much more... Um, Sam is much more my voice, even though he's not at all representative of um, my feelings about my marriage. Yeah, those those emails, they were, they were the chapters that, uh, that I would always first draft. Fiona wrote all the Lizzie and Megan chapters um, because that's sort of where we established those voices in the original web series. Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish, the book's called The Drop-Off, and each school day, these three friends drop off their fr their kids, have a coffee and share a chat. There's, there's honesty in their conversations and the humour that is generated is what makes the book such an enjoyable read. What are some of the conversations about? Uh, well, I guess it's sort of, we hope it's stuff that people can relate to. They're talking about, you know, if their kids are driving them nuts, uh, they're talking about um, their partners, they're talking about how tired. Well, actually, these three have... have put a kibosh on talking about how tired they are. They've, they've refused to acknowledge that because everyone's tired all the time when you're a parent. It's really, it's, it's all the, the typical sort of minutiae that you chat about on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't necessarily matter what you're talking about. You just know why you're drawn to these people and you can talk to them about, about anything. It's, it's, it's a strange time, the drop-off every morning. And when you find people that you do connect with, you know, you, you make a beeline for them. As soon as you see them in the morning, you just want to be with them and see them and tell them about the condiment that you found on your son's face this morning. But I also think the key with these three is their brutal honesty with each other. There's no... They, they're not pretending to be someone they're not with each other. They're very honest with each other. There's a lot of shit stirring that goes on. They like taking the mickey out of each other, especially they like the girls like taking the mickey out of Sam as much as possible, and he loves that. So they're kind of like kids in that respect. They, it's the one time of the day where they don't have to be adults. They can be a little bit more immature than they might have to be in the rest yeah, of their very, day. Yeah, very, very, very foul-mouthed kids. Yeah. <laughs> A good book isn't just about witty dialogue. One of oh my god factors comes in very early with Lizzie recognizing Rick Cook. Quote yep. on my turf had twisted and tested my sense of identity. It's a secret, and uh, it's even, a secret. she's not even comfortable telling her new friends about it. No, this and I think that that resonates hopefully with people where. You do. You feel like you had a different life when, you know, you were a kid or a teenager or in your 20s. You feel like you were a different person then and it's a bit weird when someone from that time comes into your present. Yeah, it feels like an invasion. Yeah. So this tests Lizzie's relationship with her husband, Greg. In fact, all three have relationship issues. But there's also the theme of good a valuing of community that runs through this book. It starts with Henry and finishes with Charles Dickens. So what's <laughs> the connection? Oh, obviously, why would you not put a lollipop man and one of the greatest writers of all time together, obviously? Marriage um, made in heaven. Community is very important to, was very important in this book and it's also very important to us in real life and so we wanted to have that thread going through it all the way and it starts with the lollipop man because he's a representation of community and something happens to him and one of the characters in particular has to go on this journey of figuring out if she, she's, she's obsessed with the notion of being a good person and what that means. And Henry represented everything that was good as far as she's concerned and so she wants to try and emulate that. And Charles Dickens gets uh, roped into it. 
The school year unfolds to the end of the year concert with the three friends telling different parts of it. And we talked about the emails that, that Sam writes to his, his best mate, Jack. So there's also an anonymous voice coming through in different parts. How would you describe the tone of this voice? The voice uh, in those bits is very different, I think, to the other voices throughout the book, and that was deliberate, obviously. Um, a much more menacing, dangerous tone. It's unhinged. Unhinged. Um, and we don't know for a while who this person is or why they've got this bitterness and this anger and resentment. And also to try and create a bit of intrigue about oh. who the hell is this who is this guy that keeps popping up randomly throughout this book, sort of ranting and raving. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really fun part of the book to write. Look, unusually, this book came after a movie or after a web series, which I did tune into and watch and laughed again. Honestly, well done. You very, very clever. Tell us a little bit about the web series. It came from a, an email that Fiona sent me at about 8.58 a.m. on a school morning, and she just wrote me an email that said, show idea, the drop-off. And I instantly loved it because I thought it was a great evocative title, and anyone who's spent any time in a schoolyard and particularly at a drop-off, whether you're a child or an adult, it is a mine. It's a, there's a wealth of material to be mined there. So um, we self-produced a first series of it and then um, we got some funding from Screen Australia to make a second a series. And then it, uh, Echo Publishing got in touch with Fiona, uh, who had published some of her books before, and said, how would you feel about adapting it to a book and because the web series is really just long sketches really there is a the, especially in series two there's much more of a narrative arc and there's a bit more meat on the bones but we assumed that they wanted a sort of vignette style um a collection of short stories or something that um sort of matched the format of the web series but they came back and said, oh, no, 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 we think this is, this is you know, a fully-fledged adult fiction novel. So after we pushed our eyebrows back down to an acceptable height, um, we jumped at the chance. We thought, you know, we knew these characters really well. We love them. We, we know the world so well. We had their voices in our heads as we could write them because we've heard these characters speak out loud and we know what they look like. So it made the writing of the novel not necessarily a, an easier enterprise, but it was just, it was a bit more fluid because we, we were so, we just, we knew the world and the people we were writing about really well before we started, before we wrote down a word. The other actors in this, the other um, characters that play Megan and Dave, oh, Christy within Brown and, and Scott Edgar, they are just brilliant. You two aren't bad yourselves. Oh, oh thanks. We're no Christy and Scott, but we, you know, we do our bit. Yeah, no, Christy and Scott are very dear friends of ours. Um, the, other, the other thing about the other thing about asking Christy and Scott to do the web series was that initially we weren't going to be able to pay anyone, so we had to ask <laughs> yeah. our mates. Um, I've been speaking with Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish about their book the drop-off, and also the web series. But I would suggest read the book first because that way you get double the laughs when you see it in, in <laughs> the web series. Uh, uh, the drop-off, 
Coffee, kids and chat connect three friends until they are forced out of their respective comfort zones and learn more about each other and themselves than they thought possible. Thank you very much, Fiona and Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And now it's time for David and his book. Men, especially those of middle age, are often portrayed as shallow. But what if it's the world around them that is fatuous? Dan Kaufman looks at one middle-aged man negotiating an indifferent world in Drowning in the Shallows. So, Dan, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, your lead character, David, reviewer, journalist, teacher, but he seems to be at a bit of a low point in his life. Yes, you could definitely say that. You know, he's just been dogged by someone who he really loved. and. So he's desperately trying to find a way of basically getting himself back to normal. And of course, being a guy and being not that bright, he does it in every wrong way possible. But he looks as if he's not a likeable character in the first instance. My ex made a cruel and possibly inaccurate <laughs> comment about my sexual performance. They're all missing the concept. Most of our thrills, what excites us, takes place in a short time frame. So it seems as if he's living up to this expectation of being an undesirable male preoccupied with sex. I think that's actually a good way of putting it. The thing is that because he's heartbroken, he doesn't really want to get back into another relationship. So he sort of deludedly thinks, well, you know, maybe short-term thrills are the best answer. Now, maybe if he just never gets into another relationship again, he won't get hurt. But, of course, being a guy, he sort of phrases it in a more shallow way. The interesting thing then is that one of his jobs is as a reviewer, and he's out reviewing bars. And the interesting thing is the world he goes into is incredibly shallow. It is. It's, it really sort of, I thought that would be quite funny. I mean, as someone who actually had to write about bars and nightclubs myself for a living, I thought it would be funny to have someone trying to piece himself back together and try and find the meaning of life with that as a, as a backdrop. And it really doesn't help him, of course, in, in the book. And he sort of tries to find meaning in the, the shallowest places possible. Because in these bars, they're using sex to promote the bars. There are beautiful, attractive women flirting. But in many ways, it's for the sake of publicity and David's a journalist. Why not flirt with the journo? It does mess with them a little bit. And he's sort of not clear enough to, he sort of half realises that, of course, these women aren't actually interested in him. But the other part of him still holds on to that little fantasy of, but maybe they are. Maybe I'm so charming that, yes, they could be. And it does sort of play with him a little bit and it leads him astray. But it leads him astray as well in that he has this notion with the students he is teaching as well. And we start to get into a dangerous area here because he's teaching journalism to some rather attractive young ladies. You're far too young for him. Yes, I thought it would be an interesting thing to write about in the Meta era, especially since it's sort of well known in universities that there's always this sort of thought, you know, what if some of the female students are either hitting on the male teachers or more often than not, vice versa, the male teachers might be hitting on you know, students. 
And as somebody also had to teach at university, I was always aware of these rumours going around. So then I thought, well, it would be fun to play with that a little bit, you know, see what could happen. But it's not just David who's at fault here in many ways. Some of the girls are actually actively using their sexuality as a ploy. I mean, of course, as David sort of has to you know, realise, because it's sort of the older the person, he's meant to be more mature. He's really meant to be the one controlling the situation better. And part of what I thought might hopefully drive the comedy is the fact that he's unable to do that. So, yes, some of the female students do flirt with them, but... Uh, but yeah, he really should should be managing it a little bit better. But what middle-aged man can handle it better? I mean, we are taken by appearances and we recognise beauty when we see it. How are we meant to react? That's probably one of the greatest challenges we have. There is a line in the book where he says, well, I can't help being attracted to young, attractive women. And I surely, surely it's biological. And I wanted to sort of play with the idea that on one hand, from his perspective, it seems perfectly natural to be attracted to these women. And on the other hand, he realises it's completely cretinous and horrible and disgusting of him to even be thinking about women who are so much younger than him in that way. So he really has to struggle. You know, he's thinking, well, I feel this way, but I know it's wrong. <laughs> and he's now realising even more so it's wrong with the backdrop of everything that's happening. And I put it there both for comic effect, but also because I think a lot of men do feel it. I think you're quite right and beauty should be appreciated it's just the challenge comes when the action you take in the light of that is what comes into question but david is also disillusioned uh, he's calling reviewing uh, written valium so he doesn't really like his job as a reviewer he takes a double-sided approach to it he actually on one hand he does like it and he values it he overvalues it to some degree you know, he gets this moral high horse a couple of times throughout the book by talking about how it's so important to have integrity while you do it. But then on the other hand, he sort of realises that it's actually not saving lives or anything. And so he sort of has yet another struggle with himself over whether or not, whether what he's doing has any value or not. Well, that goes to his perspective about journalism. It's like giving, uh, well, giving a journalism degree is like creating a PhD in chicken roasting. Is journalism really that bad? I was proud of that line. Before I go further, the book really shouldn't be taken too seriously. It is meant to be a fun, trashy read, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you do have that idea of you know, how important is lifestyle journalism. And to be perfectly honest, when I was teaching journalism myself, and you have these extraordinarily intelligent, earnest students who'd come in the top of their class and you really have to be in the top percentile, really, of the state to study journalism. And you think about how well, in the end, they'll probably be reviewing bars if they're lucky. And you sort of wonder, well, is this degree really the best use of their time? But also, it's really meant to be, you know, a play on journalism. Uh, I've always thought of journalism as being a bit of a circus sideshow. And I say this as someone who's been a journalist for most of his life and has absolutely loved it and adored it. And I say this with affection for my fellow journalists. But we are really the circus freaks of the professional world, and often no one else would hire us. So I do kind of like the idea of people earnestly studying to really do a job that, quite frankly, in the past was really run by misfits. And often the misfits did a fantastic job of it. They, they made the best journos. 
But also then journalism has been hit hard in the digital age in terms of a career choice. It's definitely struggling at the moment. It makes it all the harder, really, to teach journalism with a straight face sometimes. The other thing then, of course, is that David's turned to teaching. My students have hit a new level of stupefaction. He doesn't seem to be able to relate to these students. No. Look, when I first started teaching journalism, I remember... And I actually did it a long, long time ago. And it was actually before social media came into play. It was just when it was about to begin. And I remember students would be extraordinarily attentive. And toward the end, you'd come in and they'd all just be staring at their phones. And, you know, you'd sort of have this dead feeling inside. So I sort of really was playing on, on that, really, of the idea of how engaged are they. I wanted to have fun with the, guy, the idea of a guy facing a whole group of students who just really did not care about what he had to say. But the challenge also then is that they almost live in a different world in terms of what they appreciate, what their culture is, what their interests are, which doesn't seem to correlate with the perspective of the lecturer. And there's there's definitely also a huge generation gap too, where he doesn't really understand them and he feels like they don't really get him. The other interesting element, of course, is the relationship David has with his cat, Jackson. And dare I say it, it's actually chapter 10 that says it all. It's past midnight, but sleep is a distant dream. I'm sprawled on my sofa with a sedative glass of red, Tom Waits growling on the stereo, and Jackson balancing on the inside windowsill. And the chapter goes on to describe how Jackson is trying to get out of the house to find a little bit of freedom. And the, that chapter ends with, then the question hits me, am I in the same situation? He seems to identify more with his cat Jackson than with anybody else. Well, he does have a strong, loving, hating relationship with his cat. But on one hand, he swears at the cat and the cat tortures him. But on the other hand, the cat is the love of his life. So he does identify quite a bit with his cat in many ways, yes. Seems to be a more meaningful relationship than a lot of the other relationships that are there in the book. I'm going to have to end the interview there uh, at this point, Dan. But we have a rather interesting character, David. Incidentally, my name is David. He is a, a reviewer, and incidentally, I've been reviewing uh, theatre shows, who is involved in journalism. Interestingly enough, I've written a few articles, and I'm also, well, more than middle age. I'm on the other side of middle age, so I can quite readily identify with the David here. The book is called Drowning in the Shallows. The author is Dan Kaufman. And it's a Melbourne Books release. So, Dan, thank you very much for talking with me today. No, thank you very much. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.